one state party had, and I say had because they've changed this, what they referred to as the porch server, which was their server for all of their email that sat on a porch. <laughs> Outside. <laughs> Outside. <laughs> that way the heat, it would dissipate the heat. Exactly. It was called the porch server. And we started just learning really fascinating things that, you know, these were not stupid people who were out in these places. These were people who were under-resourced. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Kate Gage, who's done a lot of important work at the intersection of progressive politics and technology, an area close to my heart and which I continue to follow through this podcast. Kate's path includes work in campaigns in the federal government, uh, working on technology and global challenges in places like USAID and OSTP, helping to organize the March for Our Lives and the March for Science, founding Lab 736 to help state parties with technology, and working as a founding partner at the Movement Cooperative. She's now moving over to the Cooperative Impact Lab, which works on new ways to build progressive power. We had a lot to talk about, so this interview is long, but if you want to understand the progressive technology ecosystem and new approaches to entrepreneurship in this arena, you need to know Kate. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Kate Gage at the Cooperative Impact Lab. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Hi, Kate. Hi. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. I'm Kate Gage. I was born in Berkeley, California, and lived there for a while. My parents both went to Berkeley and have lived there their whole lives. My mother went to Berkeley High and is in, in the Berkeley High Hall of Fame. We're very proud of her. And then uh, my brother and I both went east for college. When people say went east, that meant, means you went to Dartmouth. <laughs> it's true. It is true. It, it is true that I went to Dartmouth. Yes. Uh, there's a famous story in my family of my brother asking my mother if he should go to Harvard and her saying, if you don't go, you won't know what all the fuss is about. What put your mother in the Berkeley High School Hall of Fame? My mother was a journalist. Uh, she was on a TV reporter for the CBS affiliate in in the Bay Area in the 60s and 70s and 80s. So it's actually really fascinating. My mother covered everything from the Milk and Moscone assassinations to um, the Patty Hearst trial. 
She is in the Milk and Moss, the Milk documentary and the the Harvey Milk feature film. They use footage of my mother covering that and the very famous shot of Diane Feinstein telling the reporters that Milk and Moscone had been assassinated. She was there in that stairwell. She has fascinating stories about being, you know, early women reporter in the Bay Area, covering all of those really wild things that were happening in the 60s and 70s. Patty Hearst was abducted two blocks away from my family's house in Berkeley. It's all very close. And my my father um, was originally an organizer in, in politics. He's in the Berkeley in the 60s film. So he was an organizer in Berkeley in the 60s and, and of the war moratorium in Washington um, during the Vietnam War. And I've read a profile of him where he then becomes like a very early employee at Sun Microsystems, the gigantic tech company, and has a it seems like a truly unique and important role as like networker in chief for the network company. Yes. Well, Sun Microsystems is in fact a, a large computer company, which largely does not exist anymore. So it, it actually was bought in the 2000s, um, but in the 90s, 80s and 90s was a really big part of the early days of computer hardware, got it a little into consumer hardware, and then uh, really in the early days of, of the internet. So my dad was a part of this thing that was in the Bay Area called the Homebrew Computer Club in the uh, 70s and 80s. He was in that early age of the internet too, where he really truly believed that the internet was going to be the town hall of the future, you know, the the, the, the great democratizing force largely for good <laughs> is what they believed and, and were chasing after in the 80s and 90s. And it's been really interesting, you know, my whole life and career to sort of watch as, of course, this sort of, we're about two generations now past what my father was doing at Sun. But it sounds like with two parents uh, who were, you know, part of tech and reporting on world events and national events, you must have absorbed a lot about your future direction from their preferences and interests. It's almost more in retrospect, right? I, I, I never went into my career, really at any point in my career, saying, this is what I want to be doing. This is where I'm trying to go. After college, I worked for an international development organization called the International Rescue Committee. I lived in New York. Uh, it's when I really first started looking at how data and information were tracked across organizations that were trying to achieve some type of outcome or impact. It was interesting for me, despite the fact that I've went more into global development instead of pure tech, uh, and then eventually into politics, I kept on coming back to the sort of role that technology and the role that information and data and technology play within those spaces. So it's, it, it really has only been sort of in the last, you know, 10 years or something, I've looked back and realized that I've really tracked very closely to a lot of the things that both of my parents did and my brother as well. My brother was also uh, worked for the Obama campaign. He also was in the Obama administration. Um, but uh, it, it's been the kind of theme of my life that every time I've, I've gone into issue areas that I feel are important. And I've always found myself to that. What is that role that technology innovation um, reform can play uh, within those spaces? I mean, you mentioned the Obama campaign and I know you 
did some advance back in the 07, 08 with Obama's first run. How did you find your way there? Yeah. So I started as an advanced person. So um, again, you know, a lot with my family, my, my brother had been on the, the Kerry campaign in 04. Um, and then in 2008, he actually moved to Iowa in, in April of 07 uh, as an early Obama staff person. And he kept on trying to get me to come out. He kept on sending me these notes that were, you know, there's something interesting happening here and you should come visit me here in Des Moines. And, you know, in retrospect, I know that what was happening at those times were, you know, the JJ dinner in 07, which has created this huge amount of lore and all these people who we now know to be these big Obama folks were all in Iowa. We eventually went out to visit him right after Christmas in 2007 and we landed at the airport and I immediately went to the headquarters and he, he paired me up with some staff there and I became an advanced person. We landed on the 26th. My first event was 10 a.m. on the 27th of December in 2007. And I spent the next 10, you know, 10 days or so running around Iowa doing all of the different events before the caucus and then worked the caucus night celebration and was pretty hooked. So I was still working full time in New York for the International Rescue Committee, but I started spending weekends and uh, doing New York trips and doing doing trips close to New, to, to New York that I could do. And then I finally went full-time in um, in June of 08. I went full-time in the Obama campaign right before the um, international swing. I like to note this because I am now so much in organizing and, and do identify in the, the world of organizing that I was I was a crowd person in the world of advance, which you know is the closest you can get to be <laughs> an organizer. Advanced people do often rightfully get a bad rap from the field world. But my role on the campaign was working with the people who were coming to the events, trying to figure out how to organize and turn out people to those events, and then really being the advocate for them um, at the sites to make sure that the experience of the people who were coming to those events were it was good. And um, one of the best things that that gave me was an opportunity to work really closely with the field teams in 2008. So despite the fact that I was on the advanced team, which one of my close friends refers to as the Vikings of the political world. I did get to work very closely with the field teams. I got to know a lot of the people who were doing field at that time and work really closely to, and I hope I did a good job of this, advocate for their interest, advocate for the canvassing, you know, teams they were going to need to put together, making sure we were taking care of their volunteers, getting their volunteers what they needed to make sure that they were going to continue to show up and be supportive of the campaign. So I did advance up until um, until the election. And the thing about advance is that once you do advance, you you always sort of do <laughs> advance. <laughs> I moved into policy during the Obama administration. I've been doing a lot with organizing and um, organizers and the advocacy world now. I understand I will always be be painted as an advanced person to, to many out there. I have an employee at Graphicacy who's now managing director there, and he was advanced, and he still gets called back to help out from time to time. It does seem to be a skill set that people want. I haven't done an advanced trip in eight years, but I, uh, I just uh, was on the team for the president's visit to, to New Mexico just, just last weekend. So um, I, very much to your point, I, uh, I got pulled back in for that, for that visit, which was a really interesting experience to, to jump back in. 
Many of my friends then went on to either continue to do that work or to work in the White House um, uh, in in roles that were much closer to him. So I think most of what I got a sense of was from the folks who were close to me who who did. Um, but you did find your way into the administration and through the first inaugural committee and then different agencies in the White House. Tell me about that time working in the government and what you learned and what sort of things you did. Yeah, I, I never had that intention. Again, you know, I, I did not go on to the campaign thinking, you know, you know what I want out of this is getting to move to D.C. and work in a federal agency. I was never one of those people. When we when we won, I really looked around at everyone and I said, this is great. This was really fun. What's everyone doing now? And they all go, we moved to D.C. and we get jobs in federal agencies. <laughs> and I had never thought of that. I was never the person who wanted to get a Hill internship in college. I was never the person who wanted to go into to politics in any specific way. I mean, I really just followed where the energy was and, and sort of where the excitement was. But I did, I started off as a scheduler for the uh, administrator at EPA, which was um, the worst job that I've ever had. And, and I'm very bad at scheduling, uh, which continues to this day. But I quickly tried to move out of that world and into more of a policy world. So I was lucky enough to move over to USAID, uh, the U.S. Agency for International Development, pretty quickly um, within a year of the administration. I started off in public affairs there. Um, But again, I I quickly found myself moving into the science, technology, and innovation space within the global development world again. And so I ended up staying at USAID for five and a half years. Uh, During that time, we started a new office at USAID called the Global Development Lab, which brought together all of the digital data, innovation, science, technology, research work at USAID, also procurement reform, which was really interesting. And we actually launched a whole new office there that brought that together. Um, And so I, I moved from public affairs to a senior advisor in that office, and uh, then eventually moved over to the White House to be in the Office of Science and Technology Policy. So I ended my time and ended the Obama administration. I spent all all eight years. I'm one of the one of the few and proud who managed to stay for all eight years of the Obama administration. And I I ended that time in in OSTP uh, working on international science and technology policy. You happen to overlap with Nisha Desai. Biswal at USAID. I did very much so. Yeah, yeah. Well, what did you th- What did you think of her? I'm just I, asking. She's a I, friend. No, of mine. I love Nisha. I love Nisha. <laughs> Nisha. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, another thing that would happen was it again because I was advanced. I would get pulled in to do the international trips. So I would, um, if Dr. Shah um, or uh, the president, vice president, first lady, uh, second lady, or Dr. Biden were traveling overseas, I would often get pulled in for anything that involved USAID as a bit of that sort of translator between the the world of logistics and the White House and um, the world of USAID, which has its own very, very unique and special culture. So for a while there, I was advancing all of the refugee camp trips, or uh, I advanced the first lady going to Haiti after the earthquake, actually the first lady and, and Dr. Biden. So there was a little bit of a, if it's, if it's really hot, or it's somewhat dangerous, or it has to do with global development, we will just send Kate because she, you know, speaks global development, speaks UN agencies, speaks USAID. So Nisha and I, uh, I advanced the president's 
an India trip. I think the first time I really worked with Nisha was I did an India trip when Nisha was the, um, the head of the Asia Bureau. And, um, and yes, yes. One of those where one of those rare times where the bosses and the fancy people are kind of stuck over in the side in the corner and you're out there, uh, with president. So, um, but I love, I love Nisha. Nisha's a wonderful person and I'm very glad she's continued to do great work. I really love Nisha. You have to say hi to her for me if you see her. I, I'd see her for quite frequently, just oh, had a vacation with her. Actually. Oh, wonderful. I love yeah. Nisha. Nisha's <laughs> the best. You know, I've been aware of OSTP from afar. My wife does tech policy or did. Um, what was, what was that institution like for you? I see a smile of complexity, of mixed feelings. Yeah, I worked with OSTP very closely when I was at USAID as well. Um, I did a lot of work with the initiatives they were doing to support the maker movement. So I did a lot of work with them when they were throwing these maker fairs at the White House and bringing people who are inventors and creators of anything from giant 20 foot tall walking giraffes to tiny little computers. Um, you know, there already are 20 foot walking giraffes. They're called giraffes. I know. Yeah. But they aren't, they aren't, <laughs> these were mechanical they aren't, ones. They aren't remote control, but we brought a remote control giraffe to the white house. Uh, so I worked a lot with them um, on that in the kind of democratization of access to another theme of my life is democratization of access to hardware tools and, um, manufacturing. Um, and so I did a lot of work when I was at USAID of thinking about how do we get tools and production and rapid prototyping into communities all over the world, specifically so that we can encourage communities to be solving their own problems and really that deep belief that people know what solutions they need. They just need to be given the access to those tools and to those resources to be able to solve them. So I did a lot of work with OSTP. Does that mean like 3D printed giraffe for them? <laughs> In some ways it does. I mean, 3D printing is a great example of one type of rapid prototyping technology that you can can move into. I've never pushed 3D printing specifically too hard. But that idea of spaces where people can come in and say, look, I have an idea of a thing that either solves a very specific problem for me or solves a larger problem. And I need a space and I need the equipment and the machinery and I need access to the people who know how to run that machinery to try to build it out. You know, for a while I was working with a wonderful organization called Gearbox in Nairobi, which has a sort of large makerspace there. We ran some innovation programs at USAID that would specifically focused on funding um, people with, with sort of new ideas about how to build out either hardware or uh, more sort of like social innovation programs. But yeah, I mean, 3D printing is one example of that, but definitely not the only one. I'm going to guess that the result of the 2016 election was not entirely what you were looking for. Well, I don't think the result of the 2016 election was what many people <laughs> were looking for. I mean, personally, I had spent eight years in the government, never being a person who had intended in being in government. So I had always planned on taking that as an opportunity to leave government. The end of the administration, it there was a lot of unfinished business, right? We were really expecting to be handing the work that we had all been spending many years of our lives doing to people who we either knew or people on our teams who were going to be staying. The day after the election was, of course, hard for 
for many people. I think the White House was a particularly hard place to be that day. But the following days, we had very clear objectives. And that was to make sure that the work that we had been doing would continue and to find homes for it and find supporters in agencies or elsewhere outside the government to continue that work. So um, it it was definitely hard because we had all been really expecting that um, on a policy level and on a, you know, just the work we'd all been building up and some things that were just unfinished, but needed people to maintain them and continue on the next administration. On that level, it was really hard to know that a lot of the work that we had done, which would likely either be put on hold or closed off for the next couple of years. But I, I knew it was my time. I needed, I needed to take some time. And, and, and for me, it was that opportunity to really say, you know, I'm definitely leaving. I'm not going to continue to be pulled in this direction of, you know, all the opportunities that being in the federal government are and the levers of power that you have access to and the abilities to, to support the amazing federal government employees, which was really so much of my career was not so much being the one driving specific initiatives, but finding those federal government employees who needed that, the pointy backing or the White House support to move their things forward. And so that was really hard to know that we were not going to be in that role to be able to support them. How did you get yourself into kind of the operations role for two big marches? So the first march I worked on after I left the White House was the March for Science. And that was really because I had been at OSTP. And so there was a lot of interest from many of my colleagues in that office when we saw this large grassroots movement of scientists who wanted to be more visible and they wanted to take these actions for one of the first times that we've seen that community take that stance. A very close friend of mine was involved in the march. She had been recruited in a woman named um, Ayanna Johnson, who now is is just doing incredible work across the climate space and across oceans policy work. Um, but she she brought me in um, after being recruited by the founders of the March for Science, and I ended up playing a bit of the bridge between many of the folks who'd been in OSTP and some of those uh, larger sort of scientific organizations. But really, that was also a case where I had this policy experience. I had these relationships with a lot of these folks, but I also had that advanced background. So I had the the logistics of of knowing how to put on a large-scale event. I knew about a lot of the things to kind of look out for. I had started to be working as well in the political technology space. So I had started off um, a little bit of, of exploring kind of what was out there in the, the political technology space. And so when I got pulled into March for Science, I, I used some of that knowledge. It was a really fascinating, you know, my first real experience of seeing what those large-scale movements look like, um, you know, the day after, um, what it looks like to try to convert that energy. Um, so I did that. I, I moved on pretty quickly after the march itself, but it, it was actually, you know, my first interaction with some of the CRM technologies that I now, you know, I think we actually used Action Network for the March for Science. And so I remember kind of becoming a user of Action Network in 2017. I had spent 2017 working very closely with Democratic state parties. So I founded an organization in 2017 with a guy out of the U.S. Digital Service named Eric Milland and Liz Jaff, who went on to found Be a Hero. Um, where Liz and Eric and I took teams of technologists into Democratic state parties. And so we would sit in Democratic state parties for two weeks and really kind of ask the question of, 
how are you using technology? What are you doing? How is data and technology work with your organization and your programs? So I became very well-versed in a lot of the technologies and the challenges within the political tech space. And so in 2018, just following the, the, the shooting in Parkland, I was connected with some of the folks who are working with the students. And they asked the very simple question of, of what should the students and the student leaders and some of the adults who are helping them know about the political technology space and some of the tools that are out there? What should they be thinking about as they're starting to build this movement and what new technologies or new opportunities are there to be leveraged as they have this platform? Uh, And I did a little bit of a, you know, like I'll answer that question. I'll write up a memo, but I'll also include everything I learned from March for Science and everything I've learned in the last couple of years and everything I knew from advance and from those large scale organizations. And it turned into a 15 page memo where I was, you know, adding in all sorts of folks I'd met from the political tech space and from advance and from organizing. Uh, I basically sent them over this thing that said, you know, look, I'm, I'm sure you know all of this already. But if helpful, here is, you know, about 10 or 15 pages of thoughts. And they called pretty quickly after and said, we read this. It looks like we really need someone like you or you to to be um, helping us out. And so I agreed to be the chief of staff for the March for Our Lives. I think it was about a week after the shooting. Tell me a little about that from the inside. What did it look like? How did uh, they develop the march and what? did you learn from that process? Yeah, it was, I mean, of course, one of the most fascinating things I've been a part of, but I think really, I have never seen an event that brought together sort of the true grassroots leaders, right? Folks who just really emerged into the space with leadership and vision in the student leaders um, and in the youth leaders, but also were paired with people like me and, and many others who came out of politics or came out of organizing. Um, uh, and then also this really amazing third element, which was there was a huge number of Hollywood creative LA types who were part of that as well. And I would say that the coming together of those sort of three different perspectives was not always seamless or easy. Uh, but I remember standing and watching the march and just seeing the storytelling that the folks that came out of the the Hollywood, you know, kind of storytelling and creative side, the story that they were showing and the visuals they were showing um, was better than I, anything I've ever seen come out of just pure politics. But then, you know, taking that vision and that story from the students and their leadership, and then pairing it with folks who are really professional storytellers and really know how to, how to, um, bring that together was just a, a pretty much incredible thing that I don't think has ever been replicated to the same level. You know, that uh, myth of Sisyphus where he's trying to keep pushing a rock up a hill and it keeps rolling back. We keep having these horrific shootings and then trying to turn that energy into change and not always quite getting there, usually not getting there at all. Maybe a little something coming up. We'll see. Did you see that article in the connector? Uh, and we are not saved recently. I, I did. I did see that. What, I mean, what do you make of the, of the state of the anti-gun lobby and 
associated activists and organizations. Yeah, that that in, that article was interesting. I didn't talk to Mika for that article. Um, I just saw it afterwards. He did get uh, a number of things right. And this became very relevant for me and was really formative for me watching the students um, and building up the kind of infrastructure for them and how they were managing the signups of people who signed up to lead marches and all of the, you know, thousands of people who, you know, joined their movement. I did not come out of gun violence prevention, so I didn't have a lot of the context going into it. But it was a moment where we all saw the leadership and the vision that the students had and that they had captured so much attention and interest from so many. I think it was a big opportunity for many of the groups. And we worked in partnership with Sandy Hook and Giffords and Brady and every town. We really worked across the board with everybody. And I think, um, you know, that was one of the things that was really most fascinating to see these various and different organizations coming out of so many other shootings and other touch points in the movement. I am interested to see how this one is different and if the legislation is going to pass and going to be effective. I haven't stayed particularly close to the issue since I moved on from March for Our Lives, so I don't have a kind of deep insight into the state of those relationships, the states of those organizations. So you, you started the Sing Lab 736, and I think that's when you first came to my attention, actually. I had, as a political technology firm founder, you know, been aware of sort of the slightly and but importantly different needs of state party organizations for a long time that ranged from different compliance, different issues about fundraising, different issues about sharing data. There had been people who had ideas like going way back before your time about how to have websites that shared centralized data with county parties and precinct organizations. And what did you see when you went into state party organizations and looked at their technology with that little group you started? Well, as an aside, Nathaniel, I feel like it's important to note this is also around the time that I became first became aware that NGP is just your initials. No, it's National Geographical and Political Software. Ah, okay. And also <laughs> your initials. What's well known to be sheer accident. Continues to be one of my favorite Easter eggs in, in political technology. Um, yeah, when I left the White House and after, you know, as I was sort of looking around then, I, I noticed this narrative. Um, and the narrative that political organizers, you know, Democrats more broadly, and very specifically state parties, to be honest, or, and, and sort of local organizers were not using technology correctly or efficiently or effectively. And there was this real narrative, and a lot of it was coming out of Silicon Valley and out of tech, of if the Democrats had just understood what was possible, or they had just been smarter, or the people on the ground had been smarter, that this would have gone another way. That narrative bothered me a lot. There's a lot of, 
you know, the folks on the ground need to be saved by the people who know better and the smarter people. And um, what I sought out to do with Lab 736 was to go in and really ask the people on the ground what the barriers were for them and not to do that as a you know, Google form survey that we asked them to fill out about the gaps in the space. And a lot of this came out of the work that that US Digital Service did during the Obama administration and continues to do to this day. But this understanding that you really have to go and build those relationships and build that trust with people before they're going to really tell you what those barriers were and really tell you what's going on, especially in a situation like politics, where the gatekeepers around money is so held by people's understanding and reputation and um, opinions about those types of folks. And so what we did was we would go and we would sit in their conference rooms and we would say, what's, you know, what is this system over here? What tools do you use? Who is the person using it? Um, how long have they been here? Let's go look at your security setup. This is how we found state parties, their servers and, and their hardware hanging in the shower in what used to be a bedroom or one state party had, and I say had because they've changed this, what they referred to as the porch server, which was their server for all of their email that sat on a porch. <laughs> Outside. <laughs> Outside. <laughs> that way the heat, it would dissipate the heat. Exactly. It was called the porch server. And we started just learning really fascinating things that, you know, these were not stupid people who were out in these places. These were people who were under-resourced. The idea that they would even be able to have the time to understand the landscape of all the tools and technologies and what they should be doing, let alone be resourced to use them, became so apparent when you really sat with them. And I was blown away. I just loved that work so much. I just found every day that we were going and sitting with these people and hearing their stories and hearing what they were doing. And they would just look at us and say, can you help us? Who can help us? <laughs> They're notably small organizations in general. Oh, I went in with the incredibly incorrect expectation that, you know, a swing state state party was going to have 20 people year round. And you get there and there's seven people or five. Um, <laughs> and they have many things on their plate besides technology. Exactly. Most, yep. Yeah. And just really strange technology questions like badging at state party conventions. How do we know who's that? How do we print them a badge? How do we know if they're a member? What's their member? You know, and so that kind of thing was taking up so much time and energy and everyone was just doing the best they could. I really loved that work. It got it let me meet people like you and meet so many of the other founders in the space, many people who I love and now get to call friends um, and just watch what everyone was trying to do. It was really 2018, 2019 was a really interesting time of of you know getting together and throwing things at the wall and to be able to go into many of those spaces and into any of those rooms and say, you know, look, the narrative about these people is wrong. And what we're doing here is, you know, by gatekeeping resources for them and support for them, we're cutting off these states and the people who know the states the best and know the candidates the best. And what we need to be doing is believing them in, in them and supporting them. I went from Lab 736 to March for Our Lives and then March for Our Lives to um, the Movement Cooperative. And that was um, really formative for me to see in both of those situations, these truly grassroots organizers just doing everything they can, but just such a mismatch between supply and demand for them. I'm kind of gleaning that the movement cooperative for you 
is partially a solution to what you saw as tech problems or gaps with the march and with your investigations into state parties. What's the founding story there? What is the Movement Cooperative? I started to become aware of Josh Nussbaum and the Movement Cooperative in sort of mid-2017. Um, and we were connected. We actually met at one of those conferences where everyone sort of showed up. I believe we actually met at the New Founders Conference in Chicago in 2017. I was there. You were there. Yep. Everyone was there. You know, it was an amazing time. And everyone was just getting on these planes and showing up at these rooms and saying, we don't really know what's going to happen when we're in these rooms, but at least we're all going to meet each other. And we did. Uh, so Josh and I met there and just really started to realize that what he was doing and the ethos and the values of what he was doing with Movement Cooperative, which really was grounded in in supporting advocacy, nonprofit advocacy, organizing, you know, what we refer to as the soft side groups is what I was looking to do. And me and Liz and Eric were doing on the hard side with state parties. And that was just really looking at the data and technology gaps and uh, grounding it in the organizers and really saying to these groups, to these individuals, what do you need? What, it, what is stopping you from reaching your full potential? <laughs> And so Josh and I started talking then, and he started, he officially, I think, formed the organization late in 2017. We started talking about me joining at the end of 2017. I was about to join, and then I jumped on March for Our Lives. Um, Really interestingly, the first interaction, one of the first interactions I had with March for Our Lives was that March for Our Lives was trying to figure out their data sharing agreement with Everytown. Actually, Mika talks about this in the in the article that he put out recently, and um, uh, I immediately called Josh. <laughs> Josh took a look at the data sharing agreement. Josh called the Movement Cooperative lawyers, had the lawyers look at it, and you know said like, "We need you need to rewrite this. This is how we're going to suggest rewriting um, this data sharing agreement to ensure that the the students and and the youth leadership of that organization had." ownership of the data they were collecting for that program. And that was sort of one of the first things we did together. And then as soon as March for Our Lives ended, I, I joined Movement Cooperative full-time. We actually launched, I believe, officially in April of 2018 with 15 members. 15 member organizations. 15 member organizations in, in, uh, in, in 2018, in early 2018. I had chatted with him... Uh, I don't remember for what reason, but we had a couple phone calls at the point where it wasn't launched, but he was trying to negotiate data agreements with Catalyst and Target Smart, and it was taking longer than he wanted to. And uh, and so what I picked up at that time was he was trying to sort of create an organization that would kind of collectively bargain for those kind of tools and data for its members. Is that right? Did I have yeah. that correct? And that's the that's the core basis of it. So when we launched in 2018, uh, we had 15 organizations and we were uh, a true cooperative. And this is, you know, a lot of that is Josh's stories to tell and of the early days of founding it. But um, I've offered it, him that opportunity <laughs> one of these days. And, uh, but that's like the core founding, you know, piece of TMC was, was, um, can we get the costs of the voter file and of data and of all of these technologies down to a price that is affordable for these organizations to have the resources they really need? But then 
some of the most critical decisions that Josh and Justin Burchard, who was there as well, and another founding partner of TMC, made was to say, you know, just having access to these licenses isn't enough. So there was the decision to also provide uh, data and technology staffing, the expertise on the TMC side that supports those organizations to say, you know, you all don't have to know everything. You all don't have to have people who can code on your staff. We're going to have that expertise. We're going to have those team members. And by being a member of TMC, you're going to have access to that. And then the other really big decision, as you just mentioned, was forming it as a cooperative. And this is another big theme for me. And I think something that's been really transformative for you know my experience and and my understanding of what works in the world was um, to give the power away to the organization. So the members of TMC elect the board of TMC, and uh, it is truly accountable to the movement and to the members. And so structuring it as an actual cooperative, which does collective bargaining on behalf of member organizations and getting costs down, but then also providing that expertise and then creating that community, that space where organizations that are a member of TMC, you know, they fully own their data, right? They have, you know, we do the data warehousing for them. And I say we, of course, I'll get to this a little bit, you know, I've just, I'm currently in the process of moving on from, from TMC. We've just identified a new CEO, Julia Barnes, who's just fantastic and incredible and is just set to move TMC into the next phase just beautifully. But yeah, at the time, those decisions to, to really add that expertise, to provide that cooperative decision-making, cooperative ownership, and true accountability, I think were some of the decisions that that made it able to grow as quickly as it could and be as successful as it has been over the past four years. Didn't like America Votes have some of that stuff already, like licenses to van across a lot of members. Do you know about a group called ISSI that used to provide training? Did it sort of pick up where some other folks had, you know, been? Yeah. And- I mean, these these ideas were not new, right? These are, these concepts were not new concepts in any way. Um, but I really do think that, and ISSI was, was an incredible precursor to that. America Votes continues to do incredible work in close partnership with TMC. State Voices continues to do incredible work. Many of TMC members are also sit at State Voices and America Votes tables. You know, that was all done in very close coordination and consultation. Early on at TMC, we actually really you know, strongly encouraged organizations to become America Votes members as well, to push folks to the coordination tables. Some of the choices, and I and I lift up those two, and specifically the cooperative governance piece and structuring as a nonprofit cooperative. I believe were some of the reasons why it potentially grew faster or, or hopefully has longevity beyond some of the attempts to do this previously. Can you talk about like TMC as kind of a startup and as an entrepreneurial experience? What were the steps that needed to happen that you saw and were part of? And what were the things that were more difficult or went smoothly. What was that experience like in building an institution? At the time, it, especially looking back now after four years, you know, TMC's grown to 75 national members. So we went from 15 to 75. It was an election year in 2018. So everything was, was and as for every person who was starting an organization or running an organization in 2018, um, 
it was just the sprint to that election, right? And so we were growing, we were trying to hire, trying to set policies and and the, the systems that are important for running and maintaining a successful and, and effective and you know joyful workplace uh, while also running towards that election. So we did a lot of hiring really quickly. We did a lot of onboarding really quickly. TMC is an infrastructure organization. So TMC you know, sits behind a lot of the organizations that are doing these direct advocacy and direct organizing work. I think entrepreneurship is hard for in any situation. I think definitely in a nonprofit with the cooperative governance, with an election year, added a number of variables. <laughs> and no one had ever done what we were doing before. I mean, I, I say that the idea was not new, and that's completely true. And I give so much, so much credit to everyone who's come before. You know, I was a newcomer to the political data space in, in 2018, and just remember these hours of of people informing me of all the efforts that had come before, and all of the the ways that things had been built, and why everything was the way it was. But no one had built a cooperative structure like ours before. And so there was a lot of kind of building of a new thing while trying to build service systems. Because at its core, it's a service organization. It has to deliver for the organizations that are a part of it every day. So we definitely fell, you know, short on many marks, some of which we've you know done a good job over the last couple of years and some that, you know, still remain to be to be structured. But growing that quickly, we went to about 40 or 50 staff within the first two years um, is, I think, just really difficult for any any organization in any leadership situation. Where's the funding coming from to pay for 50 staff? Do the cooperative members pay into it? You said it was a nonprofit. Are there uh, donors? Yeah. So that's one of the other great things about TMC is that um, the model is that that membership organizations pay in. So um, over half of TMC's budget is actually covered by the membership, uh, which is another reason why it's somewhat unique within the space as well. And then the other 40% comes from philanthropy. And so that is a kind of ongoing conversation across the political space, traditional political donors, a, a lot of folks who, you know, out of that Silicon Valley world, I think one of the things I I've really seen as a theme over the last couple of years is it's been great to see a lot of the folks who come out of technology or Silicon Valley who um, maybe not in these individuals, but I think where, where some of that narrative was coming that folks on the ground just don't know what they're doing or don't, you know, don't understand how to leverage media and digital and technology. Watching that world really come around to understand the importance of grassroots organizing and year-round organizing and power building has been one of my favorite things for the last couple of years. And just watching even donors who I think probably in 2017 or 2018 would have been reluctant to invest in some of those type of institutions start to really understand how important and powerful it is um, for individuals on the ground to have access to the resources they need to do their jobs and to be really leading the charge on power building in their communities. So that's been one of the great things is getting to to sort of show that and to be able to lift up those organizations for that community who may not be, you know, linked to state-based power building organizations on a daily basis, um, but who through TMC understood, you know, if you donate to TMC, that means that those organizations are going to be able to afford those things. Seeing them commit, you know, philanthropic support was really wonderful to kind of see that sort of sea change in opinion. So what exactly does TMC provide to 75 member organizations? 
the voter file, both the Catalyst and Target Smart files, um, a marketplace of over 30 different tools and technologies, uh, all at the discounted rate because we are collectively bargaining on behalf of those members, as well as that sort of data and technology support that I mentioned. So just really incredible staff on the TMC side who have deep expertise in in organizing, in technology, in coding, and engineering, and then um, really a wonderful element of it that I'm just excited to see how it continues to grow is that community side of it. So, you know, by having thousands of staff from these organizations who are a part of TMC and are sharing knowledge and sharing information and are really cultivated by the TMC staff and and just supported in giving trainings to each other um, and creating like a true platform for that type of sharing. You know, it's just amazing to sit in there and watch, even just in the Slack channel, different organizations offering support or asking questions of each other and answering each other. So we've just been able to see that that kind of community element of it become just really strong and, and valuable. And I'm just, I'm, I'm extremely excited to see where the team continues to take that over the next couple of years. What was most frustrating during that building? Balancing between the election year growth and the investment we needed to put in our staff and in our culture and in our systems. I think ultimately really became a challenge. And Julia, who's taken over as CEO at TMC, just brings a wealth of experience in that space. And a lot of this is a systems problem. A lot of this is an infrastructure problem and looking for those places where efficiencies can be made um, across the space. And then I think the cooperative governance is just so fascinating. I, I really do truly believe that that decision that you know really Josh made to make it a cooperative and to have the board be elected by the membership is one of the most valuable ways. And one of the reasons why organizations who maybe in the past had been approached by these types of things before, you know, and they said, well, well, why would we join TMC? Who owns that data? Where is that data going to go? We've seen a number of these challenge, these organizations with um, sort of large individual donors, um, especially coming out of the technology space, have some challenges because, you know, the accountability, being able to say, you know, look, we will promise to you that your data is not going to be sold or taken by from you or used in any way that you do not agree to because you are the ones making those decisions. Like, right, the accountability was there. And I do, again, believe that that was really one of the reasons why TMC is able to be so successful and why I'm so optimistic about the potential for other cooperative structures in this space, you know, why I truly believe that leaning into cooperative models, leaning into cooperative economic models and, you know, worker cooperatives and those types of um, different structures is like really where we need to be going. But it's also hard, you know, uh, (laughs) community building and getting folks, especially organizations where they're sort of like, "I I want the data and technology, but now you're also saying I need to join governance meetings and I need to understand the bylaws of the organization was definitely a challenge. It's really hard. People have a limited amount of time and a limited amount of space. And um, uh, But I've also seen that just grow so much. People are really passionate about TMC now. They see it as so a vision we always had for it was that, that the members would see it as their own. Really, they would see TMC as something that was theirs, that they would create and they can shape and they can influence. And so the more I just feel like TMC team has just done such an incredible job at cultivating that and seeing people really feel passionate about the potential of where TMC can be going is just just really valuable. But it's if you talk to anybody who works in that co- cooperative space, you know, or even you know your local food co-op, there's challenges within um, 
within that as well that, uh, you know, for-profit companies often don't have or organizations that have boards with their, you know, moms or their one donor or, you know, those organizations where it's like the ED and one other person is the board. You have a lot more simplistic uh, decision-making. Well, there does seem to be in a lot of instances in the progressive political technology space, a difference in success that comes down to understanding the politics and understanding how to fit into the ecosystem that already exists, as opposed to, I'm going to disrupt, I'm going to go my own way, I'm going to ignore the institutions that are already there. I know better, as you've kind of referenced before. Not always. Sometimes someone goes their own way and they do well with that. Who are the adjacent technology and data organizations that are important around TMC that preceded it or have been founded subsequently? Because there's quite a number. Tell me a little about that ecosystem that you kind of had to discover and work with. Yeah. And what you say just said is so true. I feel like I spent so many years having conversations with people looking to get into space where I really have to say, you know, if you think this is a truly market driven space, you're going to need to adjust your understanding. It's a trust-based marketplace. That was why just seeing, you know, TMC's ability to say, you know, you, you could, you can trust that this is going to happen if we say it is, was, was really critical. I mean, around other organizations, um, you know, there's a lot of dialogue right now, as you know, about nonprofit-owned organizations, technology companies who are structuring in different ways with, I would say, sort of alternative structures, be that nonprofit, nonprofit-owned, cooperatives, worker cooperatives. We're seeing that dialogue and conversation continue and grow momentum in, in a way that is really exciting to see. I think that's been something we've talked about for a long time with many folks, And there's been a sort of set of values aligned folks that are part of that conversation. But I think really in the last year or so, we're starting to see what that really looks like. Um, When I ask that question, I'm thinking about the Democratic Data Exchange or uh, Stack Labs. How do those fit in and what what else exists? Yeah, I mean, there's sort of how they fit in personally for me. And then there's also how they fit into the ecosystem. So um, Stack Labs is a great example of that. If folks don't know about Stack Labs, that actually... Was came out of a conversation that um, Josh Hendler and I had uh, end of 2018, um, where you know I had been at TMC for about a year and I had come out of the state party work. And when the question was brought to me of what do, what do we need to do for state parties, my answer was we need to build a movement cooperative for state parties. So Josh and I actually spent a couple months running around throwing that idea out there and talking to state party leaders and talking to the DNC and and talking to donors and sort of thinking like, was this something that'd be possible? And um, just really thrilled that, you know, eventually we flew to Wisconsin to talk to Martha Lanning, who had been the, um, the chair of the Wisconsin State Democratic Party. And, you know, Martha really saw us eye to eye and, <laughs> and we, she took it on and she's been building it out for the last couple of years, but really that was built out of that same ethos, right? So how do you have centralized expertise? How do you do the collective bargaining? How do you make sure that these organizations on the ground have what they need, that the people on the ground who know the most about that community are fully supported? So I've just been so thrilled to see Stack Labs grow over the last couple of years. You're completely right that that's, uh, you know, they, because they're hard side and 
uh, it's a bit of a different model and they've had to structure differently, but it's a similar type of type of model and, and effect. Yeah, what Lindsay and her team did at DDX over the last couple of years, it's just been great to see. That was a great partnership that we had as well, being able to really, from an engineering standpoint, understand that if DDX were to be successful, there's no way they were going to build independent sinks with you know every single diverse organization across the nonprofit and progressive space. TMC had the ability to come in and 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 help by you know being that data infrastructure for DDX to be able to build that the sinks across. Um, it's just really valuable. They're continuing to to build out. I know they have new leadership as well. So I think like it's just, it's just been great. I think the thing for me has just been watching watching leaders and funders and organizations who've been around for a long time and have a lot of gravitas and and power in the space start to kind of say, you know we can build these things differently. We can structure things differently. We can have power sit with the users, you know, the demand side. I've always seen TMC as a, you know, sort of a demand side aggregator, being able to advocate on behalf of the, of the users and the demand side has just been incredibly valuable. And so to watch the number of organizations in our community who've done that, I mean, just great work over at the, at the DNC, you know, the DNC's tech team and Nell's work and her team, and then I think some of the newer organizations that were some of the work that Cat Atwater is doing, we're just starting to see folks say, you know, look, we can actually structure things and build things the way that the community needs. We can center the users. We can center, you know, demand side in this and we're going to do it. We're going to actually figure out how to do it. And, I, and especially to see donors and the philanthropy side kind of come along on that journey with us has been, been really great and really powerful. So what is Cat Atwater up to these days? Kat is a gem. She uh, was uh, the deputy CTO at the DNC and then left. And um, she's been building out something called the Community Tech Alliance for the last uh, couple months, almost a year now. Um, She's built a really incredible team of folks. um, And it's, again, it's very aligned with the same sort of central premise of of where TMCs come out of, very values aligned. um, She's building more of the kind of full data warehousing solution for the soft side. So, you know, you've mentioned State Voices, America Votes, there's Movement Cooperative. There's a closer organizations that are not part of any of those. And one of the biggest challenges we have is making a data infrastructure that works for all of us. Her team has been been really intentional and thoughtful about that, working very closely with, with the, the folks over at TMC and others and many of the different um, organizing groups. So I'm excited to see where that goes. I think the engineering side of all of this is something that is a truly unsung heroes of the, <laughs> of the progressive movement. I know TMC has a full-time three-person engineering team that with all the different tools that are out there, the amount of data that's being created by all the different organizing efforts, you know, they're using different dialers and different texting programs and different canvassing programs and different relational organizing programs. And making sure that all that information that's collected from every single one of those, you know, volunteer efforts, organizing efforts is actually maintained somewhere and it's organized correctly and it's effective and it's efficient is been a really big problem that a lot of folks have been trying to solve over the last couple of years. I've just been incredibly proud of the work that TMC has been doing on that. There's an initiative that TMC has been doing for the last couple of years um, that uh, Justin Burchard started and, and many others have worked on called Parsons, which is a open source code 
repository to make sure that all the information collected by those different efforts can be synced back to data warehousing. Um, and I know the CATS team is looking a lot at, at some of those solutions. It's a problem that when I got into this, I would not have expected how important it is, right? And how much work goes into maintaining that information. Every time a tool changes how their tool works, you know, someone has to rebuild that sink. Someone has to make sure that information is flowing um, correctly for, you know, hundreds of organizations and, you know, dozens and dozens of tools. The work that Kat's doing, the engineering team at TMC, other engineering teams across the space are just, you know, really the unsung heroes of a lot of this to make sure that everyone's reports come in on time and everyone can track everything that's happening. I'm glad to see that, that attention is being put to that and, and resources are putting behind it. You know, I got interested in politics and technology in the mid-1980s, and I've tracked the space reasonably closely ever since, and I am still learning about what's new and astonished by how many different important things are going on. And here you are, uh, a new part of that for me to some extent. Do you have any sort of global thoughts about how we on the progressive side have evolved our data infrastructure, which anyone who's just listened to the last 20 minutes must at least understand to some extent is not wholly centralized, rationalized, simple, and there's good reason for that. You've been observing this for a long time too, and you've been in the middle of it much, much more than me of late. What, what, what are you seeing? And like, are we on the right track? Well, I think we are. On the why right does track. it matter? Well, I think we are on the right track because yeah. there's starting to be this recognition of how complicated, how complex it is. I mean, one of the TMC's current CTO is a woman named Elise Weiss, and she once talked me through. <laughs> The engineering choices that we've had to make to make sure that the way that data is managed at TMC mimics or complements how people organize. And that we went into it thinking that a standard data warehousing, data management system would be appropriate. <laughs> Only to, of course, as anyone who organizes knows, knows that every organization in the space is working in deep coalition and in partnership with other organizations, that information about an individual voter may come from lots of different places and lots of different groups, and that groups are constantly moving in and out of partnership with each other and wanting to share different types of information or track different types of information. And so the engineering choices that have had to go in to make sure that data management looks like organizing is just a tremendously large problem. I remember when Catalyst was founded to solve all those problems, if I understood it correctly. That was only one of many attempts to, out of the party and out of companies and out of other external organizations to solve these. There used to be a movement every two years to integrate systems and share data that would, you know, that there would be a small social movement to try to make that happen. 
And how are we cycle after cycle tackling the same problems again? I mean, I think you could ask that question about literally every part of politics. <laughs> or, or maybe every part of the world. Yeah, I mean, it, it is definitely not unique in any way to this. Did you look at what the Republicans do? Have they got anything any better? There were a lot of diagrams running around, you know, 2017, 2018, like the way that things worked on the Republican side and the way things worked on the Democratic side people really wanting to understand sort of what the silver bullets were that the, the Republicans were doing. Other people are much smarter than I am on this one. So I know other people will have answers called, you know, they exactly do this. I, I pretty quickly stopped playing that game. And I think for a couple of reasons. One was what we are referring to broadly as this kind of progressive democratic political, you know, power building space is just so broad and diverse and much more in my understanding of, of kind of way, the ways that Republicans organize is just that there's just, <laughs> there are not those centers of gravity in the way that there are for the types of groups that we work with, the types of nonprofit organizations across many, many issue areas, um, across many different, you know, value propositions and theories of change. And my understanding is just, it's potentially just less complex than the number of types of organizations and uh, the types of organizing that you're trying to do. One of the great things that I I loved about the way that we've built TMC is that it is tool agnostic, right? It's saying, I'm sure many tool vendors will argue with me on this, but um, that it is it is not going out there and saying, this is the one tool you all should use. This is the one text message. This is one canvassing tool. Um, we're saying, what is the way you organize? What is your theory of change? What is the constituency, the community that you're working within and then let's look at the tool set and figure out which one of these 30, 50 different resources is going to work. But because that's so diverse, that means that we've had to continually, and again, like Catalyst has done incredible work. You know, I've mentioned America Votes, State Voices. So many initiatives have done such amazing work and gotten us in so many, just moved us forward in the field. And there's just new challenges, new communities, new approaches, you know, suddenly there's relational organizing and we have to have new tools for that. We have to have new data collection for that. We have to new contracts for that. So um, I don't mean it as a cop out to just say like, it's harder. <laughs> it's more complex. <laughs> but I do truly believe it is harder and it's more complex. <laughs> and one of the things that's notable about it that is a change since probably around 2015, 16, 17 is there's a tremendous amount of entrepreneurial energy in the space. There's lots of people tackling parts of it that, and trying to improve them, many of whom are getting some traction on that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's what I'm working on now. This is my last couple of weeks with, with TMC. I've, I've been trying, you know, helping to support Julia as she's been onboarding. And um, after four years, this is my opportunity to, you know, step away and let her, you know, jump in. Those are the questions that are sticking with me. And so what I'm focusing my time on now is who are all of those people? You know, what are those projects? What are those gaps that still exist out there? You know, we've solved for so much and there are still so many gaps that make it really hard for executive directors, for organizers, for digital directors, for the people who are working on these problems every day, for them to do their work. And so I'm, I'm sort of looking at this less of like, a, oh my gosh, we've been doing so much and why are there still problems as much as like, 
we had a set of problems in 2017 and 2018. One of the reasons I'm really proud of TMC is we solved for some of those problems. Voter file access for you know national organizing groups at an affordable price. Um, you know, we we solve for for that for for in many ways, and I'm not going to say completely. And there's many things to quibble with, and I'm will take any criticisms. You know, for me personally, I watched us try to build infrastructure around the March for Our Lives in 2018 without any data infrastructure of our own, without access to a voter file, not having our own CRM for any of that organizing work, having to rely on partner organizations for that. And then a couple of years ago, March for Our Lives became a member of TMC. So this last couple months, this last month has been really interesting for me. I've been able to watch as an organization that I am so proud of the fact that they've continued and they've grown and they've staffed up and they now have access to the type of tool access and data access and their own data management and autonomy over that data that they didn't have in 2018. So it's sort of a really personal personal journey for me to say I had a problem in 2018. I I didn't was not able to point um the leaders of the March for Our Lives to a solution and to watch that organization now have a solution that I helped build has been really powerful for me. What is the Cooperative Impact Lab? So a couple of years ago we started up Cooperative Impact Lab as really the opportunity for, for what we're talking about. I've been really privileged to be able to see the power of taking a cooperative approach to solving a gap in the space. And in the last couple of years, we've run about 15 different programs with over 80 different partners, uh, many of them state-based organizing groups, around other gaps that they have, other challenges they have. So we've run programs around influencer marketing and different digital engagement. We've uh, run a couple of funds to try to encourage state-based organizations to run different types of digital innovation programs. We ran a disinformation program in 2022, working specifically with rural organizing groups. What we've been doing is really saying, like, what are the other gaps out there and which ones do we truly believe that if we took this cooperative approach, if we leverage collective bargaining, if we thought about these new ways of, organi- of starting up organizations and kind of tackled them together, could we solve for additional challenges. So right now, um, we've got a great team. And we're looking at a couple different um, issues. Right now, we're really focused on one that a lot of folks don't pay attention to often, which is finance and operations for small nonprofits. So many of my friends are executive directors of organizations and watching and personally, I've had this experience of trying to understand your runway and your budget forecast and making sure that the documents are, you know, prepared correctly for funders. It's just a huge pain point for organizations. People become EDs because they have a theory of change and they're passionate about the work and suddenly are running payroll and building budget forecasts. (laughs) Do do you know the group War Chest? Yeah, I I remember them from a couple years ago. They do hard side more, so I haven't paid attention. I haven't seen what they've been doing the last couple of years. They do a budget software for campaigns, often provided by like the D-Trip. I have done some modest advising of them, and I feel like there might be a, a, a fit between what they do or could grow into and what you might be going after. There might be someone to talk to. I don't know. Yeah. So we've got um, a guy named Josh Wolf running that work. Josh was the 
COO for MoveOn and NOI and uh, Mozilla Foundation and Booker 2020. And he's just has been building systems for these nonprofit groups forever. And well, interestingly, one of the owners of Warchest is named Josh Wolf also. That's strange. A strange coincidence. Yes. Um, but yeah, Josh, a couple years ago, we, we had a, you know, Josh Nesswam and I had a conversation with him where he kind of said, look, you've been sitting with it and advising and consulting for these nonprofit groups for so long. You know, if you could build a solution for them that would be scalable in the way that TMC has been scalable, what would it be? <laughs> and so for the last two and a half years, Josh has been building out, you know, what does it look like for there to be a centralized entity that's helping with, you know, the the nitty gritty, right? The 990 filings and the yearly audits and the, you know, budget forecast for your funders and for your board. And uh, I think it's a huge gap. I think it's a huge space that, that EDs um, contributes to ED burnout is not having the type of support. And this is nothing against Warchest, I would just say, but thinking about a solution that is not just a technology solution, but is an opportunity for, in the same way the TMC does, provides that hands-on support and coaching alongside a technology solution. What it brings to mind for me is sort of there is a bit of a potential or actual competition in business models here between sort of the higher ground, for-profit, wholly owned or owned with investors sort of enterprise and nonprofit or cooperative-based entities. What do you think are the appropriate places for thinking one would be better versus another? And you bring up higher ground who I, you know, I think they've done incredible work. I've always thought of higher ground as a really interesting complement to TMC where we're sort of a demand side aggregator and supporter, sort of like representing the user side. And then we've got higher ground who's really on that, on the supply side, right? They're, they're providing support for, um, for funders and also advocating for, um, you know, security and user experience and making sure that, that, the, their entrepreneurs have the the types of support there. So it's been a really interesting sort of partnership and collaboration between those, our two organizations um, and Shamik and Betsy over the last couple of years. And I think they also are are grappling with this, this same piece around how do you attract investor energy, philanthropic support? A lot of folks are really thinking about this. How do you bring the money in, in the way that we know venture and private equity can, while maintaining accountability and you know, values alignment with your customers and with your user base. It's a question we spent a lot of time thinking about at TMC. It's one that we're very curious with about, um, you know, where we can be helpful and supportive of that at, at, at CIL. But I know that it's a challenge for those nonprofit, either nonprofit owned or wholly nonprofit technologies to, to attract that type of investment um, and attract the type of talent who's willing to, you know, work for these places that are not going to have a big payout at the end. So I definitely fall in the category of, I wish that more entrepreneurs had the type of support to understand that you can use these alternative models and you can build companies. There's some great work being done really outside of our community um, by groups like start.coop and Zebras Unite. Um, just really incredible work with uh, you know more traditional for-profit technology and and, and for-profit companies um, to help founders understand that there are alternatives that you can structure your organization as a cooperative with your users, but they need that support, they need that investment, and you know I think it really is going to be 
important that philanthropy and the investment community come along that journey, right? They're the ones who are going to have to recognize that the for-profit model is not the only one and that they are going to have to take risks and support these organizations that are structured differently. What would you like to see the Cooperative Impact Lab become over time? If we're looking back from five years, what would get you really excited if you'd achieved it? I really want to see us be a place where we're centering the experience of the organizer and the founder and the ED of our partners and like really reaching the pain points that they have and a place for people to try things that maybe can't find a home elsewhere. I just truly believe that so many of the staff in these organizations want to be trying new approaches. They want to be trying the newer innovative technologies or the different digital approaches, but the organizational inertia is you know, just true for every organization. But seeing the leaders that we've been able to see inside of these advocacy groups, knowing what they would do if they just had unlimited resources or they had the actual support my kind of theory of change around CIL is, you know, we just see right now so many organizations are just in firefighting mode. You know, on the technology side, it's fixing the sync that broke yesterday, like the data sync. For the organizers, it's running that next program or trying to get those philanthropic dollars. Um, and we've run a couple programs at CIL that have been able to say, I truly believe that organize, organizers need a holistic set of supports to really try new approaches, right? They need funding or some type of resources, like financial resources, or for things to just be cheaper or access to licenses. They also need coaching. They need that that air cover. They need to be able to go to their ED and say, look, this thing is going to work. Or I don't even know if it's going to work, but you know, I need to be able to have that space to try new things. I think that if we had that ability, I think that if if staff felt that way within their organizations, and I'm not saying organizations don't try to give that, but I'm just saying because of you know, resource scarcity and the scarcity mindset, it, it gets in the way. Um, we would have higher retention. Folks would be more interested in staying in these organizations. They would be interested in trying things. So for me, it's really, you know, can we find two or three spaces? And right now we are focusing, you know, we're thinking about the finance and ops piece as a really sort of catalytic culture change within an organization for if that was something that just EDs didn't have to be stressed about anymore. Um, what does the world look like for those EDs? Um, we've also been looking at kind of digital directors and same with digital. You know, there's all this narrative around the fact that we should be using influencer marketing. We should be using TikTok. We should be using Discord. We should be using these different channels and meeting people where they are. But I really believe that there's barriers for individual organizations to take those risks, to try those new programs, especially as they're not um, as they're not fully um you know, proven. And so I, I, that's another space that we've been looking at and is that kind of what would a digital cooperative look like? What would a cooperative of digital organizations or digital, digital directors look like? Um, um, and like, what does that, what does that look like for them to move out of that firefighting mode and into that true, you know, kind of abundance mindset of opportunity? <laughs> um, and then we're also looking at organizations that are, I almost sort of say like in the pre TMC stage, so many groups out there are still using Google Sheets or Excel. And how do we kind of get them from like zero to one? You know, once they're at one, they can use the fancy analytics tools. They can leverage the modeling that's being done by all these really smart modeling people who I understand that's what they do, though I still don't really understand what it means. 
and all the tools, like they could be leveraging these, these resources that so much money is being put into building out these things. But if they're still back there kind of doing CSV exports of what they're doing and then cutting things on Excel all day, they're not going to reach that ability to try new things. So for me, if, if, if we at Sill can attract talent, pay them well, give them opportunity to be working on really hard problems, you know, identifying the gaps in the space, experimenting with potential solutions, and then partnering with groups like Movement Cooperative or like America Votes or like these big scale engines, right? You've got these groups like that where what excites me is that if we find something that works, we could go to one of those scale engines and say, y'all should be doing this thing or providing this service, or we should be creating this new vertical of this type of of infrastructure service. Look, we've tested it. It works. Let's now use one of these scale engines um, that's out there to to make sure that it's getting to all of the organizations that need it. That would look like success for me. Kate, you've uh, been super generous with your time. Is there another thing that you wish we had discussed that we haven't? I mean, I know you spent time as a fellow at the Kennedy School. I don't know if that was something you want to say something about. What's left that we haven't hit that you'd like to? I don't think there's anything major. We went went through a lot of different topics today. <laughs> I could talk for hours on pretty much any of these different issues. <laughs> no, I've really, I've really appreciate it. This has just been, I've been really privileged to have the career that I've had and the opportunity to work with so many different collaborators and friends. And um, I think for me, it's just a, um, I think about, you know, five years ago, leaving the white house and trying to figure out what I was going to do. And, um, I made the the pretty conscious decision to leave the global development space. You know, the really, especially the sort of innovation and tech space and global development is, is really robust and, and wonderful. And there's lots of different actors and organizations that have just embraced it. It's very different from what that space looked like for me in 2011 when I first stepped into it. It's been really wonderful for the last five years to be able to, to step into an entirely new space for me to move entirely into this U.S. domestic organizing work um, to meet so many incredible smart people who were generous with their time and explaining to me how it works and to be able to really say the same thing. I think that today this space looks really different from what it looked like in 2017 when we were all meeting in people's houses to discuss the Virginia elections and looking at so many of my friends who in 2017 had an idea and something they wanted to build which are now the infrastructure of these organizations. And I'm just so appreciative of, of them and the fact that they've stuck with it. As we all know, building organizations is hard. Any challenges I've had, I know everyone else has had too. We don't talk about them, mostly because we know that if we do, funders won't give us money. It's those kind of quiet spaces where everybody who's been leading and building these organizations everywhere from the management side, to staff side, um, and just seeing what people have built in the last couple of years is just incredible because it just looks nothing like it did, you know, just five years ago. Well, it's an honor to talk to you. Appreciate your time. Anything else you want to say? I'm glad that you've told me that NGP is not actually just your initials. I'll have to go correct that to all the people I've told over the years. <laughs> somehow a weirdly fitting note on which to end. (laughs) 
uh, sigh. Um, Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. That was Kate Gage. She's at movementcooperative.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.